Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the leaders here, and uh, today is a day that I have longed to see. Um, We have a guest speaker today, and I'm going to talk a little bit about him and how big of an impact that he has made on my life, just to make him blush. But Pastor Wayne Kent is in the house. He's sitting over here, and he's going to come preach a message for us today. Uh, the first week of our That One series, or That One Thing series, where we invite guest speakers to come in and answer a question. And the question that we've asked them to answer um, this summer is this. Um, of all of the prominent things in Jesus' ministry, so when you're reading the Gospels, you're reading all the works that Jesus Christ had done, of all the prominent things in Jesus' ministry, what's, what's the one thing that you still want to be prominent in the church today? And so we put that question before all of them. And Wayne has something real special he wants to share with us. But before he comes up here and we clap for him, I just want to tell a story about um, when Renaissance first started, we had uh, no money. Everybody knows what it's like to be broke? (laughs) Have you ever been college broke? Because we were college broke. (laughs) Like, we had no money, no money. And um, about 11, 12 years ago, um, I got a call from someone on staff. Wayne, I don't even know if you know this story, but I got a call from someone that was on staff at First Christian Church, and they said, hey, we've got some stuff that we'd like to get rid of. Would you take it? And before I could hang up the phone, I was in my truck, and I was driving to First Christian Church um, to get some stuff. And the backstory is our, our family ministry was starting to grow. We had some children's classrooms starting to take shape, but we didn't have any money to buy furniture or chairs. And uh, Don Jones, I'm going to rat him out. Don Jones called me and he said, hey, um, why don't you come pick up some of this furniture? We've got all these little bitty chairs that we have no need of now. And so I went over there and picked up a bunch of chairs. I think I stole some Christmas decorations. (laughs) I took some desks. I have no idea. They had so much stuff over there. And we took it all. In fact, funny story, we actually rented a storage unit to get all the stuff that they were throwing away so that we could put it into our storage unit in case we needed it someday. And I tell that story just to, to say that um, under the tutelage and leadership of Pastor Wayne and, and Leslie, that church is probably the most giving church I've ever encountered. That they give so much. They give so much to our community. They gave so much to us, to us in ways that they don't even understand. Wayne, when we first started to um, hire staff and we were looking to put together a, a handbook manual for our employees, I called Brian Talty, and Brian shared with me his his drives that had every piece of um, paper that you guys have filled out for your employees, how they get vacation time, how they get paid time off, how they get sabbatical time, all this stuff. When we had tech issues, we would call their tech team and we had, they, and all that to say, and none of them ever turned us away because they are such a giving church. And they get that, I'm telling you, from that guy sitting right over there. Um, And he gets that, if I could be so bold to say, from Jesus, because Jesus is so giving. So anyways, he has a tremendous message for us. I love him dearly. I've wanted him to preach here for years and years and years, and he's finally retired after 28 years of ministry over there at First Christian. He's not done doing ministry. He's going to do more ministry, 20 more years. Say amen. Say amen. Amen. 
He's like, don't say amen to that. <laughs> he's like, don't, don't give me 20 more years. But um, he's a, a fantabulous person. Would you put your hands together for our good friend, Pastor Wayne Kent. Good morning. It's good to see you today. Welcome to Renaissance, and uh, I'm very glad you're with us. If you're joining us online particularly also, I'm very glad you're here because uh, it's good the way in which uh, technology works these days. Our congregation is no longer limited to one time and one space, but all over the world and various times. So if you're joining us right now, whether it be now or months from now, welcome. It's good to have you here. And thanks, for, thanks for letting me join you today. What a great space you have. I love this. Can we switch? <laughs> I better not say that too loud, right? But no, no, I, I, I'm very glad. To, it really is an honor for Leslie and me to be here and to, um, uh, well, I have so many friends in this congregation. You live in a community this long, and it's, you just meet all kinds of people. It's great to see so many of you that I've known for a long time. Leslie and I, uh, and the people of First Christian Church, we appreciate the influence this congregation has on the community and uh, on the lives of people who are far from Christ and those who are starting out their journey and those who are a long time into it. It's all good stuff. As uh, Jeff has mentioned, uh, I've stepped down as lead pastor uh, after more than 28 years of ministry there, and it, uh, people ask me, What's it like? Well, I'm only two weekends in, so I don't really know yet. It's just like a vacation because all I'm doing right now is all these things that, you know, you have a to-do list of, I've got to do this at the house. And so I'm, I'm still figuring all that out. But I am older now. Uh, I was in my early, mid-30s, early to mid-30s when we came to town, and I'm not anymore. I've buried a lot of people, um, married a lot, birthed a lot, and uh, we have an interesting thing. I, sh I don't know if I should tell you this or not. I'm not we learned, I learned just the other day that our, our um, family ministries department is expecting 13 babies in September. Can you imagine what the nursery is going to be like in January? Ah, I'm, not, I'm not volunteering for that, but if you'd like to volunteer, I'm sure they'd be glad to have you join them. No, I really am getting older, and um, <laughs> I want to do something with you today. And these are moan, this is moments for you to moan, okay? So I'm going to, I really am getting older, and so I'm going to make a statement. I'm so old, and then you have to ask, how old are you? And then I'll tell you how old I am, and then if you want, you can moan. You ready? So let's see if we can do this. I'm so old. I'm so old. Oh, pardon me. I, I'll, I'll, I'll try. Right, we've already messed up, haven't we? We never mess up at first, Christian. <laughs> mess up is in my middle name, I want you to know. So let's try again. I'm so old. I'm so old that when I was young, rainbows were in black and white. I'm supposed to moan. Everybody moan, right? I'm so old. I'm so old that when I go to antique auctions, three people usually bid on me. Oh, there. I'm so old. I'm so old my blood type is discontinued. One more enough, right? One more is enough, right? I'm so old. I'm so old that when I was born, the Dead Sea was just getting sick. 
Anyway, enough of all of that. It really is a pleasure to be with you today and to be included in your list of guest speakers this month. And we're answering this question, what's one thing that Jesus did or mentioned or talked about in his ministry that should be equally prominent in the ministry of, the church, of churches today? In other words, I've been in ministry for more than 40 years. I was 19 years old when I first went on the road as a keyboard player with a guy by the name of Don Moen. Does that name ring a bell with anybody? And oh, Okay, so years and years ago, and spent a lot of time overseas, and uh, was blessed to do all kinds of things. So I started full-time ministry. My 20th birthday I had in the Soviet Union in Moscow in ministry. So I've been, a, I've been in ministry a long time. And the one thing that I, what's the one thing that I wish churches understood more fully? In a nutshell, I wish that congregations understood that ministry must have a global viewpoint. That Jesus indicated his ministry, his gospel, his story, his saving work was not just for his time, and neither was it just for his people, but is for all time, for all people, for every nation. And that means the entire globe. And legitimately, our lives get so wrapped up in the things that we have to do daily that at times it's easy for me to forget. There are people in our community, in our nation, and literally around the world who don't know the story of Jesus Christ. How can we change that? So to help you understand that, I'd like you to listen to my story. Uh, right now, this is the age of selfies, right? We chronicle our lives with photos that we hold up our phones and we go like this. Sometimes with they, they're in significant moments, sometimes they're in mundane moments. Now I want you to see a selfie of me that I took uh, a period of time ago, a few couple months ago now, for the sake of today's message. You can tell that I'm on an airplane. I had just boarded a British Airways plane and I was leaving from Warsaw's International Airport, Warsaw, Poland, Chopin International Airport, Less than three hours later, I was in London at Heathrow, had a four-hour layover, then I caught, a, I caught a plane to Dallas, and then home here to central Illinois. And in that photo that you see right there, something unique happened that doesn't happen very much anymore, and namely this. I had three seats all to myself on an international flight. Whoa, this is a deal, all right? And so... It, I took the photo because it was in such contrast to the things I'd seen just in days previously to have some, this moment of luxury, if you will, and space. The previous evening was also a note of, night of contrast. That was on the Sunday night. Uh, I had dinner with friends of more than 40 years. It was a lovely evening. We had fine food and lots of laughter, even some tears as we reminisced about things we'd done in years gone by. And I, initially the thought was I'd spend some time, maybe spend the night at one of their homes, but as it began to look at what, what I was going to be facing the next day and how early I'd have to be at the airport and they were, would be dealing with Warsaw traffic, I just said, well, I'll go stay at the hotel at the airport. This hotel, oh, golly, preachers, we, we tend to stay at, you know, Motel 6. They leave the light on for us. <laughs> and this wasn't a Motel 6. It was... Um, it was, I tell you, this hotel, $100, $103 it cost me, but it was like this kind of place that I wouldn't normally stay at. Brilliant, brilliant. The sheets, oh. You ever had one of those nights where the sheets are crisp and, I mean, they're, they're just pulled so tight that's spectacular. And that hotel and that airplane, I took the photo because they were in such direct contrast to the scenes that I'd walked through in the days beforehand. 
I'm referring to the scenes of crisis and fear, the stories in the faces of Ukrainian war refugees in Poland. Here's what happened. The war broke out on February 24th, and uh, we were sort of talking amongst ourselves within the life of the congregation and some of the leaders, and I said, well, why don't we just start a fund, and if people want to do something for Ukrainian refugees, we'll start this, and we'll send it off to Poland, and they can take care of the refugees. You know, two and a half million people at this point have already crossed the border from Ukraine into Poland. 700,000 children, maybe a million children that need to go to school this year. So I said, we'll raise some money and send it, and I thought maybe we'd get $1,200, maybe $2,500. Well, the money started coming in, like, and, and from other congregations here in the city and across the country that had a relationship with us. And the next thing, you know, it was, I mean, it was significant. It was like moving to seventy to $80,000. As a matter of fact, at present, it's more than $190,000 has come into that program. And it, it became, here was the, the sense, March, April, man, this fund is getting so big, we just can't send money over there willy-nilly and hope somebody does the right thing with it. So the church, apart from those funds, we f sent me to, I, they funded a trip and I went to Poland and I spent 11 days there. With friends of many years or 40 years ago there and they're in places of influence across Poland. And we wanted to know how can we think long-term with this money? Not that we're gonna hold it, we've already sent more than half of it already, but where can we sit, put it in places that can think long-term and where we can have some accountability in place. It was a fast trip, lots of miles all over the country, from Warsaw in the, basically the middle of the country, north to the Baltic Sea, and then all the way down to a city out on the um, western Ukrainian border. You can see it's, it's circled there. That's Helm. It looks like it's Chelm, but it's Helm. It's 15 miles from the border with Poland and Ukraine. And what I saw is in such disparity, in such contrast to that hotel where I stayed, the home where I was, that airplane, and what I saw people experiencing as they arrived from Ukraine. I heard stories, most of them similar, very similar, very, very common. Women, very few men, arriving from Ukraine who are struggling to meet the needs of their family. They've arrived usually with one, maybe two sets of clothing. Uh, at that point in April, they were arriving with winter coats and jackets, coats and boots, one, one set of clothing. They don't have food with them. They um, have usually traveled by train for 18 to 24 hours, standing up. That's how many of them are on the train. The children can lay on the floor, but there's not enough room for everybody to sit down, so they take turns sitting down so they might get some sleep. Then they get to the border at Poland, and um, most of them stood in line for three to five days because there's so many of them coming across the border. So again, the kids lay on the floor, on the ground and sleep, but what do the mothers do? Their fathers are left behind. The women have traveled through dangerous settings with their husbands and fathers and young adult sons left behind for the sake of fi fighting. If you're 18 through 60, 18 through 60, for the most part, you're not allowed to leave the nation. You have to join the army. They arrive in these shelters completely exhausted, emotionally depleted. They sleep usually as you would expect, deeply for days. The children are tired. They need care as the women rest. Poland has no refugee camps. I visited um, in the outskirts of Warsaw a series of what you would call, um, you know, if, we, if, if there were convention centers that had big flat floors and they would do like a car show or perhaps an electronic show, there were five of those um, buildings in a row, 30,000 cots. Walking into that first warehouse and seeing all those people on those cots, 
They arrive from the border on chartered buses that the government gives them, the ones that get to Warsaw. Some are stuck back at the border. They're handed papers, work permits, blankets or pillows past every individual, and they sleep. The government says, what are we going to do with this 700,000 to a million children who are arriving? And so uh, they've contacted a friend of mine who runs a for-profit company that has experience with daycare centers. And so um, they are now working as a non-profit company. And inside those warehouses, they're setting up rooms probably half the size of this one where children can play. IKEA has a factory in Poland, 8,000 employees. They shut down the line. We're not making any IKEA regular furniture right now. They are making children's furniture for all the daycares and schools that are going to be opened up for all these 700,000 to a million children. For the sake of children who have experienced war, the Israeli government, I mean, remember Jewish people in Israel, a lot of them come from Eastern Europe. There are a lot of Ukrainian-speaking Jewish people in Israel. And uh, a lot of them are trained in war trauma, and so they are sending teams, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, these teams. They come for one week, and then, they, I mean, they're there for two weeks, and then they, it's kind of like this team after team after team. And uh, they, this is the question they're answering. What did these children see that might impact their psyches long term? I walked up to, uh, in one of those centers where the room was set aside for kids, and um, children have been using paper and crayons and, and markers. And uh, on the wall was a, f a photo that looks like this. The, uh, this is the photo I took, is this um, piece of artwork. And uh, it was in English, so obviously it drew, drew my attention to it. The, apparently the director of the warehouse saw me looking at it, and he sent this to me later. This is it right here. That's the story of our world that's taking place right now. We don't hear about it quite as much in the news as we did back in February and March. But people are losing their lives every day. And so for today, rather than just give you a report of what's going on over there regarding Ukrainian refugees, for today, considering the crisis in Europe and the crisis of people all around the world, obviously Europe's not the only place where there's a war, there's a problem right now, what would Jesus say we should do? What's the one thing that I wish the church had a better view of here in America? I wish we had a better global view of how God would call us to do ministry. What would Jesus expect his followers to do considering the war in Europe, considering the violence and the refugee crisis there? What's our responsibility? Well, Jesus spoke about this in two different ways. And, and uh, basically, when it comes to what, if we're going to follow Jesus and minister like he did, the church and individual congregations have a responsibility for expressing God's care for humanity in two basic areas. First of all, we provide frontline care for people in need. And then secondly, we're to provide long-term care, long care leading to evangelism, to individuals actually converting to Christianity, to making Jesus Christ the Lord of, and leader of their lives, their King and their Savior. So uh, if we say this is what Jesus expects, maybe we'd say, well, where does Jesus expect this and under what settings? Well, to that end, I want to look at two statements that Jesus made about this business of his ministry and what needs to take place in the church in, on his behalf. The first one I want us to look at is from Matthew chapter 25, and I want to set the scene for you. It'll be on the screens. Jesus has got some people gathered around him, and he's talking about what heaven's going to look like at the entrance to heaven, and there's this going to be, if you will, a judgment. And he's talking about how, what it'll be like when we meet God face to face and who's going to receive his blessings and who's not. 
And who's going to, apparently, Jesus says, whoever follows his directives are going to receive blessings and are going to be invited into heaven. Now, we like to live in grace. I get that. That grace gets us into heaven. Fair enough. But somehow or other, what we do with that grace is important as well. So in this future scene, in this final judgment scene in eternity, Jesus said, I'm going to say, Jesus will say, come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. Now, in the story, as Jesus is telling it in the Gospel of Matthew, moving forward into the story, the people around him, apparently in the days ahead, are going to say, well, Jesus, we don't remember ever seeing you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or sick. Or we don't remember seeing you that. When did we feed you? When did we give you something to drink? When did we clothe you? And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. Come into my kingdom. He didn't mince words, did he? Apparently, God is watching how you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, if you're not, we can figure that out by the time we're done. We can get you on this side of the line of faith. No problem whatsoever, okay? But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you're going to make that decision today, then apparently God is watching how you and I respond to people in need. And the needs that Jesus mentioned are the first needs of all people, clothing, food, safety. You may recall from college, or maybe I'd do it in high school, junior high these days, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Do you remember that whole idea? That you, people have to be fed, they have to have, they have to have water, they have to have clothing if you want to talk to them about more important matters or more difficult matters. You've got to start with the basics. If you want to talk to people about matters like education or belonging or even Christian spirituality, They've got to know that they've got some food in their belly first. And Jesus said, take care of these people who have basic needs. That's frontline care. Christians are supposed to care for people in need. Can I, can I tell you how, how I learned this the hard way? Uh, again, as, you, as I mentioned, I've served, I just finished serving at, at First Christian now for almost 29 years. About 20 years ago, after a period of crisis in our church, as some of you in the community might remember, um, in 2004, we were um, trying to figure out what, was the, what were the days of our church, what were they going to look like ahead. And we brought in a guy who was a consultant and spent Friday night, Saturday with the leaders of the church. And we were asked a very po poignant question. It was 11 o'clock in the morning on the Saturday morning, and he asked this question. If your church disappeared overnight, would anyone other than the members notice? 11 o'clock in the morning on the Saturday said, I'm leaving now, I'll see you after lunch. That's the question. And we've got to figure out, and lunch is at noon. We pretty quickly came to an embarrassing response. If our church was to disappear overnight, would anyone other than the members notice? And our response was, not really. Oh, we were interested in evangelism. Sure. We wanted to tell people about Jesus. But telling a hungry person to become a Christian without first addressing the hunger issue is sinful. Sinful? Yeah, because Jesus said, meet their body's needs. 
You come into heaven then. Are they clothed? Are they fed? Are they watered? Are they cared for? So it changed how we do ministry, dramatically. The congregation up the road here is different today than it was 20 years ago as a result of that one question. We intentionally began running towards some struggles in our community and around the world. We realized that while we can't take on every matter of concern, we could impact some settings and some people for the sake of Jesus' name. So we went to the school board. Remember, so you remember the name Gloria Davis, school board, school board superintendent. We went to Gloria and said, how can we help? We went to the neighborhood, talked to the police department. How can we help? There's a pastor who lives in one of the neighborhoods, specifically the police said we need some help there. We asked, how can we help at the, at the hospital, at DMH? Long story short, all the chaplains at DMH providing 24-7 care are all First Christian Church employees. That's the church giving away. We have Ask Crossing Healthcare, how can we help? The radio show that many of you may have listened to me for 17 years, it all came at, about as a result of that one question. I don't say that to brag. Please don't. Not to brag, but I'm embarrassed. For the first 10 years of my ministry, we didn't even consider that, that first Christian. So why do we raise money for Ukrainian refugees? Why did they go to Poland? Because Christians, if there's a mess that we can address, shouldn't we run there? We'll care for the least of these people because Jesus said to do so. Isn't that, as I know the story of this church, isn't that the reason this building, why you guys are in this building in downtown Decatur? That if there's a mess here in the inner city, you're running toward it? Congratulations, you are, have a heart for this city. You are concerned about frontline care. Thank you. I get it. Uh, can I tell you how this played out for me when I was in Poland uh, a few weeks ago? Uh, I spent much, much of the 11 days that was there traveling around and finding out where, do we, where should we send money and who needs it and under what settings and so forth. But uh, because I have friends there from 40 years ago, and I was a musician there 40 years ago, they had heard I was coming, and they said, can you bring your ears? We might want you to play keys somewhere. So I'm a keyboard player. Your ears means you want your, your inner monitors. Bring your ears. And sure enough, I got to play in a band on the Sunday. And um, I'm there rehearsing. And, and uh, they sing much of the same kind of worship that, songs that we do. And uh, it was all good. 90 miles south of Warsaw. And the band is perhaps the best-known Christian band in the nation. They needed a keyboard player. And what a fun event that was. So they said to me uh, during rehearsal, uh, uh, so we're going to have this moment where two Ukrainian families are going to come up on stage, and they're refugees, and one of them is a pastor, and he managed to get across the border, but the other family doesn't have their father with them, but we're going to ask them to pray for their, their, their family and friends and brothers and sisters for the situation in Ukraine, and we want you to provide an underscore. That means the piano player is supposed to play something sweet and soft underneath and just make it up as you go and play long enough so that they can pray. You get the idea. You hear it. So... They come up on stage, and uh, first of all, the pastor prays, then his wife prayed, and then the, they pass the mic down the line, and a little nine-year-old girl whose father was not with them prayed. This is what she prayed. God, I pray that the children of Poland will thank you for the days when their fathers can be close to them and protect my daddy as he is serving in the Ukrainian army today. Now, I've got to tell you, friend, I'm playing. It was unbelievably emotional. Here's, here's the byproduct of war right in front of me. 
literally, I'm back where this keyboard is, and they're standing here. They are literally right in front of me. The man prays, his wife prays, and when that little girl started praying, I, I, I had to go down to this. I, I literally took my glasses off while I'm playing, and I just played with my right hand, and I pushed my eyeballs into the back of my head because I, I thought, I can't sob. This is not the time for sobbing. Sobbing is not a good idea right now. Many of the dollars that have been sent to Poland from Decatur are focused on the Ukrainian refugees that are called the least of these, Ukrainian children. As I said, the Polish government's providing daycare centers and pre-K centers for little ones. Uh, right now, we've, we've built eight pre-K centers for the children there so that mothers can go and get work in Poland. Um, we've also um, started teaching, providing funds to teach teenagers Polish as a second language so they can go to school come the fall. And I'm glad that we were able to do that. However, while we do that in the name of Jesus, remember I said there's two parts of Jesus' ministry, this global view, people in need, frontline ministry. But there's a second aspect, the work that we should be doing to leading people to become followers of Jesus Christ, not only in our cities where we live, but globally. Frontline care and then straight-up evangelism. We take care of basic needs of life now so that we can talk to people about eternal life. I mean, it's wonderful to do, take care of people's bellies, but I want to take care of people's bellies out of kindness, out of Christian compassion, but then I also want them to become a follower of Jesus. Why? Well, do you remember when Jesus said this to his disciples? He came to his disciples and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It's considered Jesus' great commission. It's one of the last statements he made post-resurrection, after he's had done ministry, after, he has, um, after he's died, after he's risen, risen from the dead, before he goes to heaven. He gives this big statement about global evangelism. People moving from non-Christian to Christian, from non-following to following. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's a global view. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's, it's a directive. It's not like, hey, if you get a moment, if it feels good one day, if you want to think about other people, if it's convenient, get other nations involved. No. Based on Jesus' authority, based on his resurrection power and authority, he said, go. Go to every nation. It's been the rallying cry of the church with this understanding that anyone without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, anyone who fits that category, that person is our target audience. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. Now, when he said that some 2,000 years ago, he meant something significantly different than what we think he might have meant when he said, go to all nations. Here's the interesting part. That all nations part, we don't see it fully in English and because of our present culture. The Greek there is ethnos, which means ethnic group. When we think of nations, we think of border states and lines on a map. We think of the number of nations in the world, somewhere around 195 at present. And, and, but those lines that we see on map, they're really modern creations. There are far more ethnic groups around the world than just those 195. There are far more ethnic groups than the nations that we see parading into an Olympic Games event. 
Missiologists have looked at how many different nations there are, how many different ethnic groups there are, right, based on missiologists, people who study missions who become experts in that. Just based on languages alone, there are some 11,000 different ethnic groups worldwide. When Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, he didn't say, go make disciples of all 195 20th, 21st century nations. He said, go to every ethnic group, every language. I want every language to know my story. So at least we know at this point that if there are 11,000 different languages, we know that there are some 2,000 languages yet that have never had the name of Jesus Christ translated into their, into their heart language. 2,000 of the 11,000 languages know nothing about Jesus. So if there are 2,000 people groups who still need to know, then there are still 2,000 people, 2,000 people groups who need to know that we are coming. We're going. That's why you and other churches like you have international pro mission projects. You're involved in Jesus' ministry work here now. Community, absolutely, and across the nation. Perfect. But Jesus followers, the last thing he said before he went to heaven, go to all the ethnic groups, go to all the nations. Jesus followers go to places where his story is still basically unknown. In international global endeavors, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So why did I go to Poland? Why am I interested in Ukrainian refugees? Yeah, I want them to be healthy and whole and for their kids to go to school. But I also want them to know about Jesus Christ. I want Russian people to know about Jesus Christ. I want Americans to know of Jesus Christ. And I want the nations that have not yet ever heard Jesus' name. I want them to know of Jesus Christ. We go to those places with the express purpose of making them disciples of Christ. But one of the ways we do that is we simply reach into their lives to express Jesus' love and touch. So why did I go to Poland? Well, I saw lots of things. I learned lots of things. Certainly the images of the warehouses with full of cots, that's burned in my memory. The joy of children enjoying those first daycare rooms that were set up. Uh, they make me both smile and cry. Smile for the joy, smile for the messes they made. You can't believe those places. That's Lego all over the floor. Cry for the, but, but I, I cry, I cry for the reasons that they are not in their own homes, their own beds, their own schools, and with their own fathers. I've got some really good news for you though. The church in Poland, excuse me, individual congregations are making a dramatic difference. For example, there's a church, again, that city, that city called Chelm, looks like Chelm, out on the western Polish border, eastern I mean, the, the eastern border of Poland, the western border of Ukraine. There's a church there. The pastor's name is Henrik. It's the first church you come to as you come across the border. It's not a large congregation, about 150 members. They're caring for refugees. They're caring for children. I sat down with their pastor. His name is Henrik. He told me that every night they have anywhere from 180 to 200 people sleep in their, in their, um, in their building. They put the pews together, allowing people to sleep there, or they put mattresses on the floor. They, they're, they're feeding them three meals a day. Their kitchen is not set up for that sort of cooking. I mean, it's one thing if you were to have a fellowship dinner once a month and you say, okay, we can get by with this little stove and everybody do potluck and all that sort of stuff. But three meals a day for weeks on end, they didn't have refrigerators or freezers in their budget. They needed help. 
As I mentioned, the Ukrainians arrive with the clothes on their back. That means their clothes have to be washed more often. I'm going to take these clothes off, put them in the washing machine, and put them back on. They don't even have washing machines in the building, so we gave them money for freezers and fridges and food and washing machines. And then I met children, dozens of them. They're refugees removed from their homes, removed from their fathers, removed from their nations, their own nation. They're the least of these that Jesus spoke about. I'm overwhelmed with the emotions, even yet today. At, at times, I'm lost for words. Maybe the only words I have are, Jesus, have mercy. These are the least of these that you talked about. This is the global view. And yet, sometimes I don't have words to pray. Sometimes, maybe our best response is to simply sit in silence before God and our spirits mourning, grieving, that there are some in this world who are in desperate need. And Jesus said, go. Those photos are from that little church out on the border. There's another church um, on the other side of Poland, still coming up against the Ukrainian, uh, still in the south, but it's further down by, still on the Ukrainian border. They too have 180 to 200 people there a night. And um, it's a unique setting because they have some Americans in their congregation. There's an international school there. So their worship services are usually uh, in both Polish and some English. You can wear a headset and they're translating as the service is going on. They realized as the Ukrainians began arriving that many of them would be there on Sundays and would probably want to come to worship. So they immediately began saying, well, we're going to do everything now in Polish, English, and Ukrainian. And I want you to um, see something that's pretty powerful here. Of, uh, this is the body of Christ in Poland doing what Jesus said, to make disciples of all nations. They realized that for them, they didn't have to go to Ukraine to tell people about Jesus. Ukraine came to them. So what they did was they said, well, let's change this worship service and um, maybe we'll, we'll just do some in Ukrainian as well tell these people who don't know Jesus as they come to our church because there's nowhere to go. So what, what you're going to see are, are some Polish people singing in Polish. Then you're going to see them singing in Ukrainian. Uh, the first sight, see, scene you'll see is of a, a young girl in a yellow or orange sweatshirt. She's going to sing in Ukrainian. You recognize Ukrainian because it's the Cyrillic alphabet. It's different. And then you might be surprised you'll recognize something else. 
What's your brothers and sisters worshiping the Lord? One of these ethnic groups. Three different ethnic groups here, as a matter of fact. Go and make disciples of all nations, of all ethnic groups, 11,000 of them around the world. I can hardly wait to get to heaven. Think about this, 11,000 different languages praising God. How sweet. We're going to do three of them right now, English, Polish, Ukrainian. Let's continue to worship the Lord and sing how great is our God.
Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.